0: music this morning you're turning back to Hebrews chapter 4 we began a series of uh, messages from these people Old Testament characters that we find in Hebrews 11 and of course these are people who walked by faith and that's why we're looking at at these people and uh, last week's message to begin with was a message on faith in general from the first three verses and also verse six So we back up to verse 4, and of course the first name that we see there is Abel. And uh, as Gordon read to us a minute ago, that takes us all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis. And uh, of course Abel, a child, Cain and Abel, both children of Adam and Eve. Now, Abel uh, rightly fixes picture, and we are told often in the Bible that uh, Abel was a believer. A righteous one. Let me remind you, in 1 John, 1 John, in chapter 3, verse 11, John puts it this way, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, evidently not born again, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil and his brother's Righteous. So Abel's works before God were righteous. In Matthew Jesus, Matthew 23, Jesus, uh, ending a long discourse, speaks of uh, Abel also where he says in Matthew 23, 34, wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you, have killed, uh, you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. From the very beginning of the Old Testament to the very end of the Old Testament, uh, these people of God had not been uh, faithful to him. But in that, he calls the blood of Abel righteous blood. So here's a righteous man who shed righteous blood. Now, as we read in in uh, Genesis chapter 4, uh, Cain was the older, right? Uh, he was the firstborn, and uh, yet he, the Bible makes clear, never did place his faith in God uh, through God's ordained means, and so he was lost. He was of that wicked one, John says. But Abel, the younger, the one that born second, uh, is said often to be righteous. I think here's a real enigma, I guess we could call it. How often does this happen in life? One gets saved and one does not. I mean, consider that uh, here these two brothers are are from the same family, as a matter of fact, they are the human race at this time, you know, unless other children had been born when this incident actually took place, they're the only four people on the earth. Uh, Adam and Eve had other children. We know of Seth, and then we're told that they had sons and daughters. But whether they were born at this time, I don't know. But So, so here are four people who ought to pretty much know what's going on between themselves and God. Uh, they They have the same... Knowledge of God, as a matter of fact, they have the same revelation of God. Everything that God has said to Adam, he has passed on to them, and and everything that God is requiring of them, and of this offering between Cain and Abel, they both hear it. They they have the same revelation, and they have the same invitation, if you will. God says, now I want you to come before me with an offering. And so they, they all hear the same thing, and yet... One says yes and one says no. That is to God in faith. It, it, it's, it's a strange thing, I think, sometimes. And yet, you know, in the Bible, throughout, like in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, where Paul is going preaching from city to city, uh, I, I note Acts 17, where, where he comes to Thessalonica. It says, Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the degree, uh, devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few, but of the Jews, which believe not, moved with envy. You find the same thing uh, uh, you know, on Mars Hill and other places. Everybody hears the same message. They hear it from the same person. Some believe, some do not. And so that's the way it goes. Uh, we've observed it in life. I think you have. As a matter of fact, I, my thoughts went back to... My teenage years, when uh, though I was saved at 11 years old, it wasn't until 16 that I really started living for the Lord at all because then I could drive and go to church on my own 50 miles each way as a teenager, and I went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I loved it. I, I wanted to go all the time. And uh, I, grew, uh, I grew up with two boys. Uh, now, I, I'm two years older than my younger brother, Joe. So we're two years apart. There was another family in town. Our parents worked together at the university. Scott was my age, and Steve was Joe's age, two years apart. We grew up from kindergarten through high school together. So we knew these boys well, played with them often and had family things with them and all. But when I when I was 16, I got excited about soul winning. I mean, I went to a soul-winning church. I went to a church that preached the gospel, and I was, I wanted to be part of that too. And so Uh, The first person I ever led to the Lord was Steve, the younger brother of these two. As a matter of fact, I remember it because we were ice skating in the wintertime on a pond on the campus of Miami University, lit up at night with lamps and things, and we were ice skating. And I remember talking to Steve, and he said, yes, I want to be saved, and we knelt down in a snowbank, and he asked the Lord to save him. Now, I gave the same message to Scott, who was my age, the older, and I, I was closer to Scott than to Steve. Why did Steve say yes and Scott say no? And yet here it happens again the same way. Later on, I took a good friend of mine, Stuart, who we played ball together. He was the quarterback on the football team and so forth. And he dated a girl named Susie that I had known since kindergarten. And they came to church with me. They hear the invitation the invitation is given. Stuart decides to get saved. Susie says, "No way, I'm not doing that." Why? Same thing happened later with some other guys who went to church with me. One guy we called Hoss, because his name was Tom Hoskins, but also because he was the tackle on the football team and the shot putter on the, and the heavyweight on the wrestling team. Nobody messed with Hoss, and he went to church with me with some other guys uh, that we played ball with. Invitation was given. Hoss gets saved. The other guys do not. Why? I have no idea. Well, I do, but I mean, you understand what happened. And how many times in life, folks, have we seen this? How can, you, how, how can we discern, how can we tell when, when two people are given the gospel invitation at the same time and their eternal soul is dependent upon this, uh, uh, this decision and they say no? I'm glad that saving faith can be exercised anytime that the gospel is given and the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin and a deep need of Christ's salvation, a person can say yes, and yet they'll say no. A matter of fact, I was thinking of great names that we know. Uh, I, I, I read briefly again that little biography of D.L. Moody, a shine boy. And a man named Dwight Kimball goes to the shoe store uh, and witnesses to the shoe shine boy. He gets led to the Lord, and that shoeshine boy is D.L. Moody. Or here, here's uh, Charles Spurgeon, who is a 16-year-old walking in a snowstorm on a winter day and ducks into a little church, you know, a little primitive Methodist church, and hardly anybody's there, and the deacon has to preach because the preacher can't make it, and he preaches a simple message and points his finger right at this 16-year-old boy, and he comes to Christ, though though his father is a minister, his grandfather is a minister, and he's not accepted the Lord until this, this unprepared man preaches and points his finger at him, and accepts the Lord. Billy Sunday was a a drunk and a baseball player, and uh, a professional baseball player, and was in Chicago for a ball game with some other ball players. They had they they drank too much. They were sitting on a curb on a on a street in Chicago, and somebody comes by and says, "Wouldn't you like to go down to Union?" Uh, a rescue mission and hear the gospel. They say no, Moody says, I mean, Sunday says, yeah, I think I'll go. He goes and gets saved. Strange thing throughout history that uh, one person will say yes and another person will say no. That deacon that preached and pointed his finger at Spurgeon was preaching from Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be ye saved all ye ends of the earth. Look unto me, and he kept pointing his finger. Look unto me, look unto me. And finally he did and was saved. So the gospel is given. Some will say yes and some will say no. And We have this story of the very first two boys, the very first ones, and one of them says equal opportunity. One says yes and another says no. Look at three characteristics with me then this morning about the gospel as, as Abel heard it, In chapter 11, verse 4 of Hebrews, and you have these three points in your bulletin if you want to follow and make sure I'm on track, okay? Number one, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. And look at verse 4, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Uh, A more excellent sacrifice, just simply better, it says. It's better what he did. How is it better? How is the sacrifice of of Abel better than than what Cain brought? We, we can say this: it was not it was not in quantity that that uh, Abel brought more stuff than Cain brought. As a matter of fact, it, it very well could be that Cain uh, Cain brought a lot more stuff because he brought the vegetables. He was a farmer. He brought you know he brought everything that he had, and and Abel just kills a lamb, and that's it, and brings that. Not even quality in the, in the sense that uh, what, what God grows out of the earth and what a farmer produces is good stuff. And what a herdsman keeps in a, in a flock, of sheep, that's good stuff. I mean, it's all good stuff. It's all grown out of God's earth. What, what is the difference? The difference is in the kind of offering that it was, so in, chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, we read, In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstlings of the flock. And the Lord had respect to Abel, offering he did not have respect to Cain. Now notice that something about both of them. First in that verse... Both of them had a specific time to come. God had said, it's time to bring an offering. Both of you bring an offering to me. Maybe, maybe Adam was included in this. I don't know. Maybe there had been previous times, but we're not told that. As, as Gordon had indicated, as far as we know, this was the first time such a thing like that happened. At least it's the first time it was recorded. And so both of them have the same invitation to come. Not only that, a specific place to come come before me, bring it. Some people believe that, that the altar before God was actually at the door of the old Garden of Eden where the cherubim protected it. And that became the altar of God and they brought their offerings back to that place. Maybe that's so. We're not told that in so many words. Uh, but anyway, they have the same invitation. They're going to the same place. As a matter of fact, of course, they have the same, they have the same information. Whatever God said to Abel, he had also said to Cain. It was, you know, he didn't trick Cain into bringing the wrong thing. They all had the same opportunities. But Abel brings a lamb and Cain brings vegetables. And we're told in no uncertain terms that the lamb is acceptable to God, but the vegetables are not as a sacrifice, as an offering. Now, why is that? Well, we understand, of course, we know that the Bible explains abundantly later that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. It's the blood that's required. How did they know that? Well, all the way back to chapter 3 of Genesis and verse 21 is where Adam and Eve had sinned, and when they sinned, they said, oh no, we're naked. Now, by the way, that's always been an obvious sign of rebellion against God to a sinful body, a sinful person to uncover themselves. But so, so what did Adam and Eve do? They go get some fig leaves and uh, sew them together. And try to make clothing out of leaves. And God says to them, that's unacceptable, if you remember. So God makes coats of skin for them. And where did these coats of skin come from? From the death of an animal. From the bloodshed of an animal. And now your covering is acceptable to me. You might say, what's wrong with fig leaves? You know, I mean, you make salad out of them, why not make clothes out of them, right? I mean, what's wrong with fig leaves? Nothing in the sense of of fig leaves any more than Cain's vegetables. But if God says to cover sin, blood has to be shed, then the vegetable is unacceptable and the fig leaves are unacceptable. And so God shed the blood of that goat and brought it. And so what do we learn from it? It They have to be covered. It couldn't be by human work, by their, their own hands. It had to be from God, and it had to be what God said to do, and that is to shed blood. And how else, folks, could he reject Cain's offering had he not given this instruction, right? I mean, if he had given no instruction and just said, just come before me, bring what you can, bring whatever the fruit of your hands is, then Cain would have to be accepted, But obviously, God had told him at some point, blood has to be brought. And since God had said that, Cain was disobedient. And Cain at this point thinks that what he grew, he plowed the ground, he planted the seed, he watered, he he took care, he grew these things, they're beautiful. No doubt he picked out the best of the vegetables that he had grown. Everything was great. He he could win blue ribbons at the state fair. I mean, these were wonderful things. He brings them to God. You can't bring better vegetables than that. But God says, that's not what I told you. That's not, I told you that's not what's acceptable. I need blood because of your sin. And Abel had the advantage of of tending a flock, and he had lambs, but it's not like Cain wouldn't have had access to those kinds of things too. Abel brings that. I don't think just because he was a herdsman and had lambs, I think because evidently he knew what God had said, and he knew that's what he had to bring. That's why he's called righteous. A little note that you might remember or think about is Uh, in God's progressive revelation as we start out in Genesis and go all the way to the New Testament. At first, one lamb for one man. One lamb for the sins of Abel. Abel is pronounced righteous. Later, when the Passover is instituted, one lamb for a family. You bring one lamb, you kill it, you you put the blood on the doorposts, and so forth, one lamb atones for one family. Then after that, the law is given, one lamb for a whole nation. On the Day of Atonement, one sacrifice for the whole nation. And as we come to the New Testament and the days of the Son of God, one lamb for the whole world. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the whole world. And so we have one sacrifice that has been made for us. And that is Jesus Christ as he died on the cross for us and shed his blood. That is what God has said has to be applied to you for the forgiveness of your sins. That's why we must come to God through him. And so he offered a better sacrifice than Cain. Better, much better. The only kind of sacrifice he could offer. Now, secondly, Abel obtained a divine witness to his faith. So back in verse 4 again, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. You know, salvation is something that we get from God. Salvation is something that is given to us, as we've already kind of figured out. It is not not in our hands that we bring, uh, but simply to thy cross I cling, as the song says. And so he obtained something. It originated with God. And since it originated with God, he could obtain it. He could get it. Remember John 1:11. 11, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We have to receive something. We don't give something in order to get salvation. We, we only receive it. And so here comes Abel. Uh, and he is going to obtain something from God. He's going to obtain a witness, uh, a witness that is testified of God. Let me skip uh, down for a minute and look at that expression, God testifying of his gifts, God witnessing to his gifts, it says. And I thought this to myself, what happened there? God witnessed to his gifts. And what did God do? We do have the words in Genesis that he said, you know, he, th- th- that, he, that he accepted this and didn't accept that, but what did he do? It's kind of left to our imagination, I guess, as to exactly what God did. But I got curious, and I uh, uh, looked up a few verses where God did witness to the gift of blood that was brought. Let me go back with you. First of all, when to the book of Leviticus, you don't have to turn there. But in in Leviticus nine, they are dedicating the tabernacle. You know, they've built it. They built it the way God wants it built, and they and they bring the proper sacrifice, killed outside, the blood shed, the blood brought in, and so forth. And it says in verse 24, there came a fire out from the Lord, and he consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. I mean, God bore witness to that sacrifice that it's acceptable to him. And everybody falls down on their face and praises the Lord. Gideon made a sacrifice in Judges chapter 6 where he, he brings a sacrifice to the Lord in a day when, when there was great sin and apostasy in the land. And, and verse 21 says, the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes. By the way, the angel of the Lord is the appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord departed. I mean, it made a show of it. Received it that way. You remember Elijah on Mount Carmel, don't you? You remember when he, he put the offering and the sacrifice together and the prophets of Baal tried to get this done and they could do nothing? And, and then it says, the fire of, when, when Elijah uh, prayed, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water in the trench. God made a show of it. First Chronicles twenty one, Solomon uh, uh, or excuse me, this is uh, before First Chronicles twenty one is where David buys the threshing floor to build the temple on, and he makes an early sacrifice on that spot before even there's a temple there, and it says. Uh, Uh, that that he offered unto the Lord the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and called upon the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of the burnt offering. When Solomon builds a temple on that spot, he uh, dedicates the temple with an offering. And it says, when Solomon made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Why am I I reading those? Because God accepts proper sacrifices. There's there's praise even in the presence of the angels of heaven when one sinner repents. But you remember when Jesus died on the cross? Matthew 27, verse 50, puts it this way. Jesus, when he had cried with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. The earth did quake. The rocks rent rent. The graves were opened and bodies came up out of the graves when Jesus died because God accepted that sacrifice. So why do I read that to you? I read it to you, folks, because when you apply the blood of the proper sacrifice to your heart, there is witness of God to you that that's right. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If you can go back in your memory to the day you got saved, you know what I mean. Now, it's not fire from heaven and the age of grace and miracles that happen around us. It is that strong testimony of the Holy Spirit that just entered in and took up residence in your heart, and you say, praise God for this. I've told you, I don't know how many times, when I was 11 and got saved on that Sunday morning at a church, and, so, and a man showed me how to pray and asked the Lord to save me, and I walked out just as an 11-year-old boy, and I could only think of that that statement, white as snow, you know, I, and I just everything about it was white as snow. And I, I could have sung in the choir that morning. I mean, I, you know, I, it, it was great because the Spirit bears witness to that. And I think uh, f- from, from biblical history up to the time Jesus died, God bore witness to the fact that when His sacrifice is properly applied and properly made, Uh, it's a wonderful and great thing. Now, I'll make one more statement about that expression there because it says he brought a more excellent sacrifice in Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Righteous means, of course, your account is justified before God. As a matter of fact, we use that that term justified. Uh, You are made right with God. Justification has taken place. And how does that happen? It happens by faith. You know, uh, Abel is called righteous in all of these verses in the New Testament that speak about him, righteous Abel. But do you remember that when Abraham's faith is often spoken of, like in Romans 4, 2, and 3, uh, referring back to, to uh, Genesis, if Abraham, for if Abraham were justified by works kind of like Cain tried to do. He hath whereof to glory, that is, I glory in myself, but you can't glory before God. What saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. What did Abraham do? What did Abraham understand? Whatever God told him, and basically, it was the promises, the Abrahamic covenant that he had given to him. Abraham says, whatever you say, Lord, I believe. And that was counted to him for righteousness. Now, you and I have a clear view of what God has accepts as a proper sacrifice. My son died on the cross, was buried, rose again for you, shed his blood for you. And just as Abraham believed God in his day, and that was counted to him for righteousness, you must believe God in our day of that sacrifice that was made for you. And when you do, then it's counted to you for righteousness. you, you You have an account, and that account has all the sins against you. And God makes the account right, erases it takes away your sin, separates them as far as the east is from the west, and you are counted righteous. So It's a great thing. That's what happened to Abel all the way back there. As a matter of fact, that is exactly what we're going to see happens to every one of these Old Testament saints when they believe God. By faith, he did this. By faith, he did that. And that's what we see. So the conversion experience is a wonderful thing. When God accepts it, go on with me then to number three, and that is Abel left an enduring legacy. Then about this to us. So the end of verse four says, "By it he being dead yet speaketh; he being dead yet speaketh." As a matter of fact, all these years later, guess guess what we're reading? <laughs> we're reading about Abel's faith that God preserved. And He preserved it for us so that we could learn from it and apply it and understand it. And I think about poor Abel. I, I think the fact that number one, he died prematurely; he didn't even get to live to be an old man. And people in those days lived pretty long. You know, he probably would have lived nine hundred or so years. Adam did nine hundred. You know, so nine hundred and thirty, I think it was. And 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 the the others. Abel had no family, as far as we know. Uh, unlike Cain, who later married uh, a sister, no doubt, but, but Abel did not. And so there, there's no legacy as far as children go. There's no family left to, for us to read about their genealogy. And evidently, being the younger one perhaps or whatever, uh, I assume that Abel was kind of the weaker of the two, that Cain could have his way with him if he wanted to. Cain could whip him if he wanted to. And when he rose up against him, Abel couldn't defend himself. So all of the, kind of as far as a person goes, you might say Abel wasn't much (laughs) to look at. And yet here's his legacy and not Cain's. As a matter of fact, let me briefly uh, remind you of Cain's legacy. Cain, Cain kind of has a legacy too, doesn't he? When we think of Cain and Abel, Cain's legacy is a bad legacy. I would call him the father of legalism, the father of works salvation. As a matter of fact, that's what John wrote about, again, in 1 John, you know, uh, when we're told there in 1 John that uh, not as Cain, which is of that wicked one, he, he tried to bring Something that was good, but it was the, the work of his own hands. Now, now poor, poor Cain, I say poor Cain, in this sense, uh, I, I imagine that these two boys were extraordinary creatures, if you will. Good grief. I mean, Adam was a creation of God with the brains that he had, and, and even as a fall, even when he falls into sin. I mean, they, they could do wonderful things, and here is his, his children, they could too. Adam was a farmer, why not Cain? Adam, Adam tilled the ground, kept the garden, why not Cain? So he goes into the same profession as his, as his father, he's the oldest son, he inherits the business, so to speak. He's got all of this going for him except for one thing, and that is he disobeyed what God said. He's got the best, as I said before, he's got the best of of fruit. He's got the best of the vegetables. He's got the best of everything. He's a great farmer. What he brings is wonderful, but unacceptable to God because it's not what God said. And when you go back to to, to chapter 4, you'll find after this account that that the genealogy of Cain is given in Genesis chapter 4, and it includes the most notorious sinner before the flood of, of, uh, of uh, Noah in Lamech. He's a murderer and brags about it in that chapter. And all of that genealogy from Cain is destroyed in the flood, and no one from Cain's uh, family lives after the flood. That's his legacy. God wipes it out. Now, God gives another child named Seth, of course, and so in, then in the genealogies of Seth, we find a righteous line again, and Noah comes in the genealogy of this new son who has children and has a genealogy, Methuselah and, and uh, even Enoch who walked with God and so forth. They all come under Seth's genealogy, but Cain, no legacy that way. His legacy's wiped out in the flood. A person may bring to God, folks, wonderful things. A lost sinner can come to God and be an Einstein in his brain and say, how about this, God, I'll give you my brain if you'll give me eternal life. He might come with with all the physical ability in the world, the the greatest athlete in the world or the greatest artist in the world or the greatest singer in the world and say, I'll give you all of this, God, if you'll give me eternal life. And God would say no every time because it's not in the things of our hands. Cain was the father of works salvation and God rejects it every time. But Abel's legacy is that he's the father of blood salvation. He's the first one that brought a blood offering simply because God said, that's what I want. Now, it says that, that he being dead yet speaketh. He speaks to us. <laughs> Moffat, in his commentary, said it this way, Death is never the last word in the life of a righteous man. As a matter of fact, D.L. Moody himself said, there will be a greater work done after you are gone by the influence of your life than when you were living. The legacy of a righteous man lives on. And the legacy of of Abel then lives on as as our example, not Cain. And yet Cain, as far as human standards will go, head and shoulders probably above Abel. God did not accept him and accepted, accepted Abel. And what is then Abel saying? Number one, let me put it this way. We are sinners and need to be redeemed. You've got you to gotta come before God. You've gotta get, you have to obtain this righteousness from God. We are sinners and we need it. And secondly, it has to be the blood of an innocent one that will atone for your sins. And those, when, when the blood of a lamb, which can only cover sins for a while, when the blood of a lamb, it had to be a spotless lamb. It had to be one without blemish and so forth. And, of course, Jesus Christ comes as our sacrifice without sin, without spot, without blemish, and dies for us on the cross. And faith, then, is the placing of your trust in that that God has said to do. And God has said, you must place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let his blood wash you from sin. Not your works, not your brains, not your physical ability, not all of that. Not your money. The work of Jesus Christ in your place. And by the way, righteousness is secure if you do that, but punishment is secure if you do not. And just as Cain suffered for his disobedience, we would suffer for our disobedience as well. Look back uh, quickly, a a page before probably in chapter 7 of Hebrews in verse 25, a wonderful verse stated there, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God, what? By him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The book of Hebrews is all about that. You come to God by Him. You come because of His sacrifice. You come because He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You come because He's the door, and by me no man enters in. This is God's revelation to us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And every other way is Cain's way. Every other way is a works righteousness way. But if you'll come by the blood of Jesus Christ... That simple faith will bring you righteousness. It's a great thing, folks. So as we we leave it there in verse 4, let me me remind you of this. There was someone before you who left you a legacy. Whoever told you about the gospel left you that legacy, right? Passed it on from, from Abel and uh, we're going we're gonna to see all of these names, and Enoch, and Noah, and all the rest. That person who preached the gospel to you, my pastor did when I was that 11-year-old boy. When somebody explained the gospel to you, left you this legacy so that you could come to God this way, that legacy that began with Abel, he being dead yet speaketh. And the second thought is that you're going to leave someone else a legacy. You're going to leave your children or grandchildren or acquaintances or friends. You're going to leave somebody else a legacy. Can they follow? Is it a blood legacy? Can they see your faith? And when you turn around and explain the the gospel to them, do they see that blood legacy left for them? So on the one hand, we have much to be thankful for that the gospel still has been spread to you and me, and we've heard it from someone. What will we do with it? Will we carry it on so that he being dead yet speaks to a further generation than ours? I hope that it's true. I hope that it's true in your life. I hope that you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, and if not, you would run to him and place your faith in him, that you might have this righteousness that comes from him. Stand now with me, if you will. As we stand, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, how we thank you for this... St- the record of your truth and history. And thank you, Father, for taking us all the way back to this first blood sacrifice that was made, that pictured and foreshadowed the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thank you for Abel and his faith. Thank you, Father, that he left us this legacy, that he still speaks to us. Thank you for the warning that we have in Cain's life, sad as it is, but a warning to us nonetheless. So, Father, I just pray that you would apply these things to our hearts as we need. Could be that somebody's not saved and not accepted Christ as Savior. Oh, may they see this and heed it. And then, Father, uh, maybe it's just that we realize our need of giving out this message, our need of saying it plainly, our need of passing it on to our children and grandchildren to another generation in this church. Thank you, Father, for these things and speaking these things to us. Apply it to our hearts. Draw us to yourself the way that we should come. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song of invitation as we do our...